Amen. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? You guys doing good? Everybody survived Snowpocalypse 2019? Yeah. How many of you were without power this week? Yeah, suffered. I mean, I, a lot of people I heard complaining and stuff, but I, I feel like our plight was probably equal. We were without power for two hours. It was the darkest two hours of my life. It's amazing how, you, how fast it can go from 2019 to 1819. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, all the things that make your life meaningful, like Netflix, and uh, they can just be taken from you in that moment. And all of a sudden, my children are like, Dad, will you play a game with us? And I'm like, who are you? What is going on right now? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just having fun. Some of you are like, we like it. We like camping. We like the snow. It's great. How many of you have kids that would have gone to school but were at your house all week? Yeah. So our, our, our kids are normally at our house all the time anyway, so, and Bethany's always there, and I go to work, you know, and so <laughs> anyways. Um, uh, our neighbor lady, though, she was bringing back reports. Bethany was saying, our neighbor's going to, she's going crazy. She's like, if my kids don't go to school tomorrow, then something bad's going to happen. And she was like, I mean, you could, when you can see like a lady, you know, a mom in her 30s out there shoveling the entire street free of snow, you know that someone wants their kids to go to school. And uh, it was great. She cleared that whole street right off. And then she started working on the other streets and side roads. And we just wanted to get all the way to the freeway and get her kids to school. But oh, I'm just teasing. But man, what a, what a good time. I'm glad everybody's here safe and sound. And uh, it was fun while it lasted. And now go away, snow. We want to get back to watching TV and having internet and power and hot showers and all that. I guess water still works, doesn't it? I don't know how this whole thing works. If you're in the city, okay. So how many of you are, anybody here still without power? Anybody still missing? No, everybody's good. No, Sinclair's, okay. Well, they chose to live out in the, you know, boondocks or whatever. If you choose to live, you know, 17,000 miles away from the rest of us, because you're, you know, like the country, sure. You just need to learn to love your neighbor a little bit is what I think. Then if you, thanks, Thomas, I appreciate that. I feel as successful on a Sunday when I get a guffaw. You know, there's a, on a hierarchy of laughter, you have like a chortle, a chuckle, right? And then a guffaw, ah, a guffaw. I think only men can guffaw. Isn't that true? Ladies don't do that, but they have an elegant laugh. While we're talking about laughing, how about sneezing? How many of you are those people who are like, ah, that, oh, he is really? That kind of makes me mad. You know what I mean? Because it's like smoke without fire, right? I have a friend, though, that his name is Josh, and uh, he, uh, he sneezes and, like, it actually hurts people, physically hurts them. He sneezes so loud. And I, I think old men, we tend, as I get older, you know, and start having ear hair and things like that, my sneezing also becomes more manly. I don't know if that's, any men have encountered this. The other day, I was just like, and it sounded like a battle cry, sneezing. That doesn't have anything to do with today. i just having a good time. Uh, I preached a little angry in the first service, so I'm trying to lighten it up a bit before I, <laughs> seriously, uh, bring it in today. But I'm excited to jump in. We, uh, we are finishing up our series in the book of Philippians. And Philippians, for those of you that maybe haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And uh, the, the letter is really about joy and the joy of knowing Jesus and the ability to have joy uh, that transcends circumstances and what it looks like to have a relationship with Christ. And so we're going to be finishing that up today. And I'm really excited about that. If you haven't seen all the messages or heard them, go, I encourage you to go back onto joyeugene.com and watch the messages, especially the one that Bethany preached, because that one was really good. 
Um, but just to, to get, there's a lot of wealth and, and riches inside of these words. And I love it that the, this letter that was written 2,000 years ago to Christians on the other side of the world in a very different culture than we live in now can still be as applicable and relevant to us today because it's timeless truth, right? It's not limited to culture or time or geography. It, it transcends all of that. And the Lord wants to speak to us out of that. And so today we're going to be going in Philippians chapter four, pulling out a couple of verses and uh, talking about something really, you know, not a big deal, just the secret of life, the secret of living. Um, you know, a lot of people, they ask questions like this, you know, what's the meaning of life? What's the secret of life? And the reality is that's the holy grail question, isn't it? Because most of us are trying to figure out how to live. How many of you would say with me, I'm, I'm really an amateur at this thing we call life, right? No, we got a lot of experts in here. Nobody participates in class anymore? What? Everybody's like, you get a gold star? No, raise your hand. If you, the question, you got to put your, okay. Um, you know, for me, I'm not an expert at life. You know, I, uh, many times we live our life kind of like a, a boat without a rudder and then the winds of, of life, the circumstances push us to and fro. You know, we get, if, if good things are happening in our life, we're, we're happy and we're elated and everything's good. And if bad things happen in our life, then everything's bad and we're we're kind of depressed. Now, I don't mean to, to make light of any person that actually suffers with mental illness, but how many of you know that we live kind of a bipolar existence? And I'm talking about me in that when, when things are good, I'm, I'm good. And if somebody comes up and is like, what's the secret of life? I'm like, oh, I've got it all figured out. Everything's great. When my emotions are up, when everything's good, it feels good, right? But then when bad things happen and things don't go the way that I want, then all of a sudden I'm down in the dumps and I'm all uh, discouraged and all of that. And that's where most of us live is we kind of get pushed back and forth by circumstances. But the Apostle Paul, in this uh, passage of scripture in Philippians chapter four, specifically verse 12, which we're gonna start with reading, he makes a startling claim. And he says in Philippians 4, 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. And he's describing the poles of life, you know, when things are good, when things are bad. He says, I have learned the secret of living in every situation. That's a really bold claim. He says, whether it is with a full stomach, praise the Lord, or with an empty one, with plenty or little. Now, this claim that he's making is very bold. He's saying, hey, no matter what happens, I'm good. I know the secret of life. I know the secret to living. I know how to keep myself on course when the winds are blowing from the left or the right. I don't get pulled aside. I get it. I know how to stay on track. And this is a really bold claim, but let's look at how he backs this up. A lot of you are going to be familiar with this verse. It's Philippians 4.13, and it says this. This is the very next passage of scripture. He says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. How many of you have heard this? How many of you have quoted this verse? You know, you're like, I'm going to get a good score on my SAT. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to score a touchdown for Jesus. So I'm going to, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me, right? We use this verse all the time, typically horribly misapplied abused and, and, and tortured out of context. Um, yes, I think God wants to help you uh, in your life with the things that, that you're doing, but I always wonder like, is it like on a team when we're praying for the Ducks to score touchdowns and the Beavers, are there more Christians in Corvallis praying? How, does, how do they figure that out upstairs? You know what I mean? In heaven, is God like, who's prayed more? Who's laughed more at the pastor's jokes this week? You know, and that's how we're gonna sway it, you guys, is if, you know, who, <laughs> no, okay. How does he answer that prayer? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny, but we pray, right? If I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me, that means I can score more touchdowns than the other guys. And 
the reality is this verse isn't about touchdowns and it's not about um, getting a good score or getting a deal on your car. It's not about um, you sort of succeeding in what you want to do in life. This, this verse actually is a lot better than that because it's a lot more global and universal for every person to understand the secret of life. Um, because what's going to happen is there are times where if you're an athlete and you wish you could score touchdowns in that game, um, and, and it doesn't happen. Yeah, you're going to be sad for a moment, but there are actually things that are more weighty, unless it's the Civil War or the, the game against the Huskies. Last week, I called the Washington game the Civil War. Did anybody notice that? Oh, man. That's like worse than preaching with your fly down or something. I mean, it's horrible. My wife was like, Jake, you know, you, you, you called the Husky game the Civil War. And I'm like, twice. Thank you. Appreciate it. Don't you just love grace? I love it. It's amazing. No, you're right. It was twice. It's actually more like four times because I did it twice in each message. So, yeah. Um, well, I do know what the Civil War is between the ducks and the, the beavers. I just forget about them, so I mess it up. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Okay. But we, we misapply this verse, but this verse is, is, is really a lot bigger because Paul's saying, hey, in whatever circumstance, good or bad, whatever goes on, when you have Christ, you can get through anything. You can you not only just get through, but you can get ahead. You can, actually, you can actually thrive in life. This is the secret of life. I know the secret of living, he says. I, I, I've discovered it. It's in Christ. And through him, uh, he's going to give me strength to get through and, and survive and thrive in every situation. Now, this is a really big deal. But let's get some context about this claim to know the secret of living. Because obviously we could just close right now and say, okay, Jesus is the answer, bye. You know, and everybody would be like, okay. But the reality is a relationship with Christ is a lot more than words on paper or words you hear in a sermon. A relationship with Jesus, uh, uh, this, what Paul's describing as the secret of living is quite a bit deeper than exchanging one set of ideas for another. Becoming a Christian is not like, I believe some things over here, now I believe some different things, and now I'm a Christian. No, becoming a Christian is about a complete transformation from the inside out as the resurrection power of Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you, and it begins to change you from the inside out so that you think, you speak, you act differently. It transforms you. Amen. All right? I'm spitting so much already. It's a good sermon when I'm just Spitting, you know, that's why nobody sits here. This is like Shamu splash zone at SeaWorld. <clears throat> and Paul says, this is the secret of living. But there's, there's context here. And as we go back in Philippians 4, we got to remember this whole letter is a letter about joy. And joy in a Christian sense, and as the biblical writers talk about joy, is a lot different than the way we think about joy. You see, we tend to think about joy and we, we equate it or mistake it with the word happiness. And I gave you guys that quote a few times last week, but happiness depends upon what happens. Joy is a different matter. Happiness is situational. Happiness is if we win the game, we're happy. If the other team wins the game, we're unhappy. That's what happiness is. Happiness is everything in my life is good uh, and I'm happy when things are bad. I'm unhappy. It's being pulled back and forth. Joy is something that the biblical writers, when they speak of it, is transcendent and it's beyond it's sort of out of reach of the circumstances and situations of life. And that's what we're talking about in the book of Philippians is Paul is saying, I want you to understand the joy that you crave, that your life 
is sort of oriented towards this thing that you are always pulling at and it's pulling at you, but you can't quite put your finger on it. This kind of transcendent, above it all, beyond circumstantial life kind of joy, this is what you can find in Christ. And if we go back in verse four of this passage, it says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. When do you say something again? When it really matters. When you want the point to sink in. If you're a parent, you say everything again. It's just kind of like having an echo, right? Yourself, go to bed, go to bed. Because they don't obey the first one, right? And you have to learn the inflection. It's like, hey kids, go to bed. And then the second one is like, hey kids, go to bed. You know, (laughs) and it's very different. Paul says, listen, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And what he's saying is get your eyes uh, in the right spot. You're gonna make a decision to either choose a life of joy or you're going to make a decision to choose to live a life of circumstantial uh, things that you're gonna be pulled back and forth. And so he's saying you have an opportunity, an option to put your eyes on Christ. You have an opportunity to find joy in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Now here's what we're gonna do today. We're talking about the secret of living and I've already given you the answer. The secret of living is found in Christ. The answer to every question in Sunday school is Jesus, right? Who loves you? Jesus. Who died for your sins? Who's gonna win the Super Bowl? No, you're, sorry. (laughs) Um, Well, Jesus will win if somebody puts Philippians 4.13 on their eye makeup. Anyways, um, didn't get a lot of laughs for that, but you know, in baseball, if you hit like 330, it's a good batting average. I feel like jokes, you know, if I can get like one out of three, it'd be pretty good. Um, I'm, that was another miss. Okay, so <laughs> feeling really good about the next one. Um, he says, let everyone be considerate. Let everyone see that you are considerate and all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. So we're talking about joy, discovering the secret of joy. But, but I want to give us some, some framework for how we see this relationship with Christ. The answer is Jesus, yes. But what does a relationship with Jesus really in, imply? What does it look like? What are the steps? How does Paul elaborate this? He builds a framework in this chapter that leads up to the secret. And knowing the secret in and of itself, yes, it's the answer. Have a relationship with Jesus. But if that has no depth or, or width or, or uh, a connection in our actual life, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, to find strength in our relationship with Jesus, then it's not gonna really help us a whole lot. So I wanna lay some foundations here today. Always be full of joy, he says. As I say it again, rejoice. Paul starts by letting us know that knowing Jesus brings true and lasting joy. That we find joy. When you're looking for joy in your life, which we all are through whatever means we're trying to acquire it, the end all and be all of joy is Jesus. But it's not Jesus because he gives you the things that give you joy. It's Jesus because he is the joy in our life. Because he is He's not the means to an end. He is the end. He's the the end all be all. We find joy in our actual relationship with Christ. And listen, this is gonna help a lot of you because if you think that your Christianity is about you doing the right stuff and then Jesus gives you joy, he blesses you and he gives you a healthy marriage and he gives you you peace in your life and all this kind of stuff. What you have is a transactional understanding of Christianity. The problem is when you go into life and you find out that the things that you want to happen do not happen. And again, the winds of life blow back and forth and you get pushed out of feeling blessed in the moment. 
then you're going to think, man, what the heck is wrong with this Jesus machine? I put the quarters in it and it didn't, it's not giving me my Doritos. You know what I mean? It, like it's, if we think of Jesus in this way of transactional, then what we're going to see is that our joy will be connected to, does he provide and do what I want him to do in the moment and how I see it or not? This is why a lot of people, their Christian faith has no vitality to it. This is why a lot of marriages have no vitality to them. Because if you see your spouse as the means to an end, you do not have love. You have something very different. Do you hear what I'm saying? My wife does not make me happy because she does things for me. I delight in her and who she is. And the things that she does for me are benefits and they're great. And I love that. And I do things for her, but you know what? We don't want to be loved because of what we do. We want to be loved because of who we are. And yet we treat God in this way where we say, well, I'll have joy in you when you give me the things that I want. But when the things that I want are not forthcoming, I don't have any joy. No, what's going on is you're losing sight of the fact that Jesus is your prize. He is your reward. There is nothing higher, greater, better for God to give us the, the greatest thing in the universe, which is very intrinsic nature of, of love actually compels him to do. He must offer us himself and bring us into relationship with him. There is no higher joy. There is no higher meaning in life than to know Christ. But if you're waiting for your Christianity to provide a package of benefits and you tie your joy to that, your joy is going to be on a kite going everywhere as the wind blows. But when Jesus is your joy, this world doesn't matter to you. You are, you are outside of it in a sense and, and in relationship with him. And so Paul says, be full of joy in the Lord. Joy does not happen outside of the Lord. He is our joy. Are you with me? And then he goes on in verse five. He says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Now I'm gonna get up in your, your business right now because this is, I'm gonna preach something that you haven't heard me say a whole lot of probably. And you probably are gonna think, man, Jake, you, you like need to get, you know, get the burr out of your saddle or whatever today. That was at least first service. But this is a really important message and I wanna share this with you. I wanna share it with grace. I wanna share it the best of my ability, but I want to share it nonetheless. Because we live in a postmodern society that has divorced belief and behavior. We live in a culture, we live in a time in which how you feel is more important than that which is actually in existence or that which is. We, we live in a time in where it's okay for you to identify however you wish to do so and other people aren't allowed to say, no, that's, that's not actually a physical reality. And I'm not trying to make political or any kind of statements. I'm not trying to offend people, but I, need to, but I need to talk about this. Paul is bringing us back to the reality that the joy of knowing Jesus will actually be connected to our real lives and that belief and behavior are intrinsically linked. And that if you actually believe something, it will actually impact what you do and how you think and how you live. And that to say, I believe something and have no difference in my actual life is nonsense. It is illogical, right? And, and this is a scary place that we find ourselves in, in our culture. And this is just a repeating cycle through history is that what happens is as people lose sight of God and objective moral values and the fact that there is a God and he is coming back and he will hold this world into account, that when we lose sight of that, what happens is a bunch of evil and nonsense gets released into the system and death begins to reign. I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago, some of you know I was in Israel and Mark and I got to walk through a place called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the Holocaust Memorial. And to walk through, they, they set up the museum. It's a big kind of pyramid or, you know, triangle type room 
that goes on and you have to walk through. You can't just walk straight through. You have to walk through each part of the exhibit crisscross uh, so that you see it all because they want you to experience the progression of the ideologies and everything that led up to this horrible tragedy. Now, those of you, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Holocaust, but here it is in a nutshell. The Nazis killed 6 million Jews because they were Jewish and they had an idea that they were subhuman or whatever. And I won't go into all of that. It is a fascinating thought, you know, progression and everything that happened. But, but in a nutshell, what, what the biggest, one of the biggest tragedies, apart from the fact that all these people were executed in a horrific way for, a, for an insane reason, is that so many people who otherwise were very sane had lost their brain and said nothing and did nothing to prevent this horrendous thing from happening. Now we look at that and we go, my God, we never want to have that happen again in culture. And yet many times we sit by idly and we allow the same nonsense uh, that belief and behavior are not connected. We allow that to come in and permeate and saturate our thinking and in our culture. And the same thing will happen again. The end result, if there is no God that is coming back to hold us into account for what we actually do in our real life, if we throw that idea out, then what we get is gas chambers. If we throw that idea out, then what we get to is a place where everything goes. And then the problem is in a world where everything goes, everything goes to beep. And you know that I'm right about this, don't you? How many of you appreciate the fact that we have a system in which our electricity actually gets turned back on when it goes off? How many of you appreciate the fact that like somebody cares enough to make sure that your water is not like poisoning you how many of you know the science that goes behind keeping our water clean? I don't. Some of you are like, I do. <laughs> well, good for you, scientists. Some of us have worthless degrees in things like philosophy. <laughs> that was good. That was good. That was good. Okay. How many, we don't, I don't know how to fix the transformers that go out when, when the power goes out but I'm grateful that someone isn't completely uh, relativistic. Well, your truth is that your power's up, but my truth is that it's not. Like we function in a, in a civilization because people actually care about objective reality. But what we are doing is we're saying, well, we care about objective reality when it comes to getting the power and the water back on, but we don't care about objective reality when it comes to morals. We don't care about objective reality when it comes to is life something that is sacred and should be protected? We don't care about objective morals when we say people are made in the image of God and it doesn't matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat or they're gay or they're straight. It doesn't matter. They have value and worth and they deserve to be treated with dignity. Now, at the same time, when you treat people with dignity, you can have a disagreement and say, we stand on opposite sides, but real love has the room in it for disagreement. But we now live in a culture where you can't even tell someone that you disagree with them because that's not loving. And that's absurd and ridiculous. Now you go, Jake, what are you talking about right now? I thought we were talking about joy. We are talking about joy and I'll explain why. Paul says, listen, be considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. We need to ask ourselves, am I living a life that is pleasing to God? Am I being considerate in what I do? Am I connecting my Christianity with my life? Or is my Christianity really just a uh, lip service ideology, something that I go and I hear cute messages, you know, on Sunday and I laugh and then I go back and then everything in my world is the same on Monday. No, that's not what the Christian faith is. Paul says, be considerate, think about what you do. Why? Because God is coming back. 
Because the world that is is not the world that was meant to be and it will not be the world that is to come. There is a God who cares about people and has a particular idea about what is right and what is wrong and he didn't ask your or my opinion about it. And he's coming back to put all things into order and so we need to think about how we live. Am I living a life that pleases God? Because a godly life is a joyful life. In the book of Romans chapter 14, verse 17, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there's a progression here. Many people want joy. Yes, we do. It's what our heart craves. We want to be fulfilled. We want that joy that passes uh, circumstances. That's beyond good or bad things. And we want peace. But what comes first? Righteousness. Where there is no righteousness, there is no peace. And where there is no peace, there is no joy. And I want to tell you, you know, when you go to places where, where righteousness has fallen, the book of Isaiah says, truth has fallen in the street. When righteousness, which just means right living and a right way of living before God, when that falls down by the wayside, you know what goes first? Peace. You know, when you think about the fact that we live in a civilization where there's law and order, do you know what happened or what didn't happen when everybody's power went out this week? We didn't all go kill each other. I don't know about Springfield, but in Eugene, we did it. <laughs> People are like, I'm hungry. You ever had long pig? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a home run. All right. That's why you keep swinging the bat, you guys. You keep swinging it. We didn't, we didn't disintegrate into, into this lawless, chaotic place. But when you go to places like Cambodia and you hear about the Khmer Rouge and people, they, 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 they literally have a place they call the killing fields. When you go, to, uh, when you go to, to Europe and you go to Auschwitz and Birkow and you see that there were people that were pastors and doctors and lawyers and uh, pharmacists and moms and dads that put on you know, that stupid swastika and we're, we're so hateful and we're so deceived and we're literally taking one and a half million children and putting them to death. When you go through the museum and you see the shoes of the people and you hear their stories and you think, oh, that couldn't happen here. Well, it could happen here. It did happen here. It, it, it's happened in, to us, it's people. We, we disconnect ourselves from history, but we need to learn these lessons. And I know that's kind of shocking, but here's the thing. We didn't just go take our guns and, you know, I don't even own any guns, so I'd be at your mercy, you know, but uh, we didn't just go lawless when the power went out. We, we, we actually held ourselves together and we're waiting for things to kind of get back into order because there's some right thinking and some righteousness in the way that we think collectively as a people group in this area. We didn't just immediately go start smashing the windows of stores and stealing all the food. I mean, hopefully you didn't. I mean... <laughs> It's, have you ever seen the episode in the office when they have the fire alarm and Kevin smashing the vending machine? And, you know, there's righteousness. How many of you are grateful that, that, that you could actually sit in your house, even though it was like 1819 and you didn't have any power, that nobody was coming to murder you at that moment? Did anybody like that? You just take it for granted, don't you? We all do. We all, we all take peace for granted, but we don't realize that our peace depends upon righteousness. And when you get rid of righteousness, guess what goes next? Peace. And you'll never get to joy without it. When you are not at peace, how many of you know when you have no peace, you have no joy? But we don't like this idea that we can't have peace or joy without righteousness. Because why? Because that righteousness means somebody has an opinion about what you do with your life. 
this is my body. Mine isn't that great. Somebody can have it. You know what I mean? I'll trade. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. That's your truth. This is my truth. There's no, there's, no, there's no accountability. I can do whatever I want. I'm not hurting anyone. Well, that's up for debate because what you're actually doing when you deny the objective moral reality and the fact that the universe that woven into it is, a, is right and wrong, when you deny that, you actually are hurting people because you are, you are contributing to the state of affairs that leads to a thing like the Holocaust. Now, I know that sounds insane, like it's extreme, but it's not. And when you actually study this, historically and philosophically and ideologically, politically, you can see the seeds get planted in civilizations over and over and over again. When they lose sight of objective moral values, what goes first is peace and joy is lost in the bargain. And you say, what does this have to do with us today, Pastor Jake? Well, we need to understand that what we do matters, that our Christian faith needs to make an impact in how we think and how we speak and how we live and how we act and not allow ourselves to lose sight of that and not just go try to chase peace and joy apart from righteousness. Now, those of you that have been here more than two hours at a Joy Church service, you know, been to two services, you know that we preach grace. We do not earn our way to God because of righteousness. You can never be good enough to get to God. How many of you agree with that? But that doesn't mean that righteousness doesn't matter. It's just putting the cart before the horse. If we think our righteousness gets us in with God, we're wrong. The scripture tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. You could never be good enough or clean enough or right enough to earn your way with God. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to help you be clean and actually live a righteous life. Because when we say, Jesus, what you've done in me, I want it to actually saturate me from the inside out and change how I think and change how I act. And Jesus, I want you to get a hold of my Netflix account. Jesus, I want you to get a hold of my family. Jesus, I want you to get a hold of my, what I say when people cut me off on the belt line. Jesus, I want to invite you into my work life and my coworkers that I don't like. And Jesus, I want to invite you into my marriage. When Jesus gets to be king of it all, he's the king of righteousness and he's going to lead you to live rightly. Why? Because he wants to lead you into peace and joy. But we have become a people, even in the church, that just pursues joy and peace apart from righteousness and you will never have it. It's a fool's errand. Now you can, look at, you can listen to me today and go, man, he needs to like, you know, chill out a little bit. What's going on, man? He's wearing his camel skin coat inside out today or something like that. No, I'm saying this because of love, because I'm just as guilty as you. When I look inside of myself, I don't find the seeds of my own salvation. I find the seeds of my own destruction. That even when I know what is right and what is good and what I should do, I don't always do it, right? You know, in Romans chapter seven, when Paul goes through this progression, he says, though I know what I ought to do, that I do not do. And instead I do what I know I shouldn't do. (laughs) How many of you have these arguments in your head? I shouldn't do this, shouldn't watch this, shouldn't say that, shouldn't act this way right? Shouldn't drink that, shouldn't put that in my body, shouldn't do that. And yet we do it because we're a slave to sin. But Romans 8, 1 says, but, but in Christ or in, uh, in that passage and it goes up and in Christ, it, it changes. Come on. When you're in Jesus, therefore there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But are we walk according to the spirit? Are we walking according to the spirit of God? Or are we just remaining in our own way of thinking and saying, I want peace and I want joy. I want Jesus to give me that, but I don't want his plan for my life. I don't want him to get into my business and tell me how to live my life. But what we will find like every other civilization in history is that if we don't embrace the righteousness of God, we will never inherit the peace of God. We will never inherit the joy of God. And though you can look and see even decades and times and periods of peace and joy 
in the final analysis, what always will happen is destruction because there's only two sides in this cosmic war. Come on. And when you, when you stop, when you, when you stop guarding the hen house, guess who comes looking for the, for the chickens. All right, moving on. That was a lot of metaphor there. And I don't, I don't know if it was good, but I liked it myself. Righteousness leads to peace. Peace leads to joy. We need to hold on to that. And Paul goes on in verse six. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ and Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Paul's painting us a picture here. Righteousness, peace, joy. He, he reiterates this message in Romans 14, where he talks about the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. There's different contexts there, but, but he's talking about the kingdom of God, that it goes righteousness, peace, and joy. And this is the, the order in this passage that he's leading us up to, that the secret is Christ. But how does it work? When you have Jesus, he leads you to have righteousness and then peace and then joy. And so he talks in this passage here. He says, listen, instead of worrying about everything, you should pray about everything. Now, listen, prayer is something that we've kind of turned into like wishing in our culture. People say, you know, pray for me. And you're like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And then you really don't. And they don't really think you will. They just feel better because they asked somebody to pray for them. Does that make sense? We've sort of turned prayer into like good wishes for you. You know, I, I think good things to you. I don't, please don't think good things towards me. Help me out. If you see me on the side of the road and I'm broken down, stop. Could nobody pray for me if I'm broken down on the side of the road? Could you just like help me? Just, you know what I mean? If my family's destitute and we're out in the cold because I preached a really aggressive message on Sunday and now we don't have a job, please don't pray for me. Like, could you come to, you know, bring us some food, right? How many of you are with me? I want you to pray for me, yes. But you know, in our culture, we've turned prayer into sort of like good thoughts or vibes, or I'm sending you good vibrations and you and the beach boys, you know? And, and that's not what prayer is. Prayer is a very dynamic act. The very act of prayer is an acknowledgement that the world has a, a different shape than what culture says it does. Because when you actually pray, what you're saying is there is a God who hears and cares about what's going on here. And I'm asking him to invade. I'm asking him to intervene in a circumstance or situation. And it's an active decision to pray and really not believe in God is like one of the biggest useless wastes of time ever. You know, if you don't actually think there's a God who's invested in this world and actually has a plan for it, then prayer was like a waste of time. You'd be better off worrying. But Paul says, listen, the pathway to peace isn't to worry. The pathway to peace is prayer. Why? Because there is a God. Because he does care about this world. Because he does respond to the requests of people. With that, that this real peace that God wants to give us, this peace that leads to joy, it's actually kind of paradoxical because you don't get it when you chase it. You get it when you stop chasing it and you start trusting in God and you start acknowledging God. To be a person of prayer is a very dynamic thing. It has a lot more ramifications than we think. To pray is a supreme act of faith and of humility and of trust. To admit that you don't have the answers. To admit that you aren't Superman or Superwoman. To admit that you do need this supernatural being to intervene in your life. People will mockingly say, oh, Jesus is a crutch for you. I'm like, crutch? No, he's more than that. 
life support system. Because when I look inside of myself, I don't have all the answers to live my life correctly. I'm tr- life to me is a mystery. I don't even know my own mind half the time. People are like, what do you want to eat today? I have absolutely no idea. All of it and none of it. You know, I don't, how many of you know the hardest decision you make every week is where do you go to eat after church on Sunday? If you guys might walk out and see Bethany and I, we sit in the car, you know, usually for like 10 minutes and she's like, what do you want today? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Oh, what do I want to eat today? And that's just about where you're going to go to eat on Sunday. What about when, when the questions in your life really matter? How many of you know we don't really have it all figured out? Sure, on your good days when your emotions are all happy and everything, you feel like you have it all figured out, but then very quickly reality hits. It's called Monday. And then you're like, oh, I'm a mess. We need Jesus. We need the Lord to come. And then Paul goes on. He says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Listen, I want to tell you, there's so many things that I put my thoughts on that are not admirable, that are not worthy, that are not pure. And I just want to challenge us as as a church. Hey, if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you can close your ears. Don't listen to this part. Now you really want to listen to it, huh? But if you're a follower of Jesus, does Jesus have, does he really have say over what you watch on Netflix? Does Jesus really have a say of the kind of music you put into your, 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 you listen to and you let permeate your thinking? Does Jesus have the password to your Twitter account? Does Jesus have your Facebook page? Does he have your browser history? Does Jesus have access? Now I'm not saying moralism, like do the right stuff or God's going to smite you. What I'm saying is no, we're talking about after Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, righteousness should come. Righteousness should be the result of a relationship with Jesus because he begins to transform you and change your desires and all of that. But we, we've let this postmodern idea of relativism, moral relativism specifically, permeate into our thinking to such a deep level that now we, we even people that are bona fide, genuine followers of Christ, actual Christians, they disconnect and divorce all of their actual life and behavior from what they supposedly actually believe. And you can see why that's such a problem. Where is the integrity and authenticity? Not, I'm not preaching at you, I'm talking to myself. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus and then I'm going somewhere that Jesus is not leading me, then I am not a follower of Jesus. To follow Jesus implies that I actually walk behind him and go where he goes. And so many times I make a decision to go my own way and yet I want peace and I want joy and I wanna say I'm a Christian and I'm all good with God and everything's fine, everything's good. The scriptures are pretty full of this kind of language where it says, you know, you say peace, peace, but there will be no peace. See, when there's no righteousness, there's no peace. When you divorce your faith and your belief in Christ from your behavior in Christ, you are creating a cognitive dissonance inside of yourself. You are now becoming a disintegrated individual and you are actually going insane. Not like metaphorically, literally. My kids and I are talking about this because it's in what movie? Uh, series of fortunate events, they talk about the difference between literally and figuratively. So my kids are walking around the house and they're like, this is literally, you know, true. This is figuratively. And we're like, that's good. You know, they're learning from TV. That's awesome. How many of you understand what I'm saying? When we say I have a faith in Christ, this is my life. I'm a follower of Jesus. But basically nothing ever changes in what I actually do. You are insane. You are not connected to reality. Are you with me? Now, we don't believe it because here's the thing. Everybody who's insane thinks the people that are sane are crazy. 
Did you know that? Hey, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching you. See, just because you can get someone to agree with your insanity doesn't mean that it's not crazy. And so you can go find somebody to basically support you to be or do anything you want to do, and someone will back you up, but that doesn't mean you're right. And you don't answer to that person. You answer to God. You don't answer to me. You answer to God. And we all, we all have to go into the scriptures and say, Jesus, when I see you and what you did, am I following you or am I following my own way? But I put a Jesus badge on my shirt and I identify as a Christian, but it has no worth or value. That's called hypocrisy and we don't want to do that. So Paul tells us, and I know we're getting running out, we're out of time. We're not running out. We are, we, we have ran out of time. But I want to say two more things here. This last point, Paul tells us to fix our thoughts. Fix our thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. And this word fix can go two ways. It can mean to repair or to lock on. And in this case, he's using it to lock on. You know, put your thoughts, lock on to, those, to, to good things, to right things. But actually, we also need to repair our thoughts. And the way we get our thoughts fixed is by fixing our thoughts, by locking on to the right type of stuff. I just want to encourage us as a church. It's okay. Did you know it's okay to read a book that doesn't have pictures in it? And I mean, it can have some pictures, but it doesn't have to have pictures. It's actually, it's actually legal to read books that will challenge you at a deep intellectual and spiritual level. It's okay to read books about history and philosophy and understand ideologies and progressions of things and then take your Christian faith and find yourself on the map of what's happening in the world so that you actually begin to be woke about what, where we are in history and what God is doing and where things are. Do you hear what I'm saying? You know, the, 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 the funny thing is we live in a civilization in which information is literally at our fingertips and yet more people are, under, are less informed about truth and sanity than ever before. Because what's happened is right now in culture, the loudest voice is always the one that's, that's listened to, but the loudest voice does not automatically equate to truth. And I wanna challenge us as a people. I wanna challenge us as the, the followers of Christ in Eugene, Oregon, to become aware and activated intellectually, spiritually, uh, morally in our relationship with Jesus and to, to begin to fix our thoughts on what is true and pure and admirable and right and say, God, I want to be an agent of change. I want to be somebody that you can use to prevent horrific evil that goes on in the world, not by hurting other people or winning elections or whatever I'm talking about, but literally you become part of the change that you want to see in the world. I don't, I don't mean to be a bumper sticker, but you know, be the change you want to see in the world. This is what the Christian faith is about. And I'm going to talk about this in the next series. God's job is to love the world, but it's our job to love our neighbor. But we can't love our neighbor as ourself until we understand how to follow Jesus. Fix your thoughts. Paul said, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living, the secret of life. In every situation, whether with full stomach or empty, plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The secret of living is knowing Christ, knowing him in a real way, knowing him in an integrated way, not knowing Jesus in an intellectual way, divorced from reality, knowing Jesus in an integrated way, allowing him to show us how to think, how to speak, how to act, to make us righteous, to purify us, to change us from the inside out and having a peace in him that passes all understanding and leading to a joy in him that is apart and transcendent above every circumstance that life throws at us. Happiness depends on what happens, but joy 
is a different matter. This morning, if you're here and you want to put your faith in Christ, it was kind of an intense message, but I believe God brought you here on purpose. You're not here by accident. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus in a real way, an integrated way, say, listen, I've been pursuing my own way, my own thoughts, my own life, chasing joy, chasing peace, and I was missing something here. I was missing a relationship with Christ where I would be made righteous and where I would uh, begin to encounter him in a real way that would change my real life. If you want to put your faith in Jesus, I just want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. And then we want to help you take some next steps after that. But I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself or raise your hand, anything like that. I just want you to pray with me today. And we're all going to pray this together. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life, my real life, every part of me. I confess my sin. I've fallen short of you, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be reconciled with you. I give you my life in Jesus' name. Amen.